Amen. Praise the Lord. I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles tonight to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, we want to talk on the healing ministry of Jesus. And this is the story of the uh, centurion that Jesus recognized for his, the uh, greatness of his faith. Beginning in verse 5, it says, And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him. Now, the, the centurion is a Roman soldier with a hundred troops under him. So there came unto him the centurion beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lies at home, sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal him. There's a, um, in the original language, the original Greek, it literally says, having come, I will heal him. Having come, I will heal him. It appears that in the original text, Jesus is saying, because I've come to the earth, healing is available. It belongs to him specifically, but not just to him exclusively. Talking about the centurion. So he said, Jesus said, I will come and heal him. And the centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way. And as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the selfsame hour. Now, there's a lot of things we could talk about there. Certainly Jesus is, uh, when he marvels because of the greatness of the man's faith, he identifies that this is the kind of faith that he should have found in Israel. Because the exercise of faith, the necessity of faith and the exercise thereof, is not a new concept. It doesn't begin when Jesus comes to the earth. The children of Israel were supposed to operate by faith and were taught by God through the law of Moses to operate by faith in everything that they did. You remember when they came to the promised land and Israel, the first time I mean, and Israel believed the majority report, the 10 spies that came back with an evil report, the scripture says, God said at that point in time, as you have spoken in my ear, so shall I do unto you. See, the idea of believing with your heart and confessing with the mouth has always been God's plan. God created the earth, the Bible says. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were created. Everything about the, uh, the creation account in Genesis is God speaking, and whatever he says comes to pass. And when the fact of the Bible, the fact that the Bible tells us in Genesis 1.26 that man was created to have authority here on the earth. Let us make man in our own image after our own likeness and let them have dominion over the earth and over all the works of our hands. That tells us that we were made in God's class of being who created the world by faith. So you create your world by faith too. Your words count. You'll have what you say. So the centurion comes to Jesus and Jesus marvels because he's got the kind of faith that God would have hoped to find, Jesus would have hoped to have found among the Jews, but could never find it. He just couldn't find it. There was nobody, virtually nobody, I guess, that was operating in the kind of faith that the Bible had been given. The Old Testament, the law and the prophets had been given to Israel to understand and so that they could operate in the kind of faith that God does. But this man was different. He says the children of the kingdom will be left out, meaning those that are trying to make their way to God through the law, as Israel was trying to do in those days and still tries to do to some degree today. He said, but there'll be a lot of people that will come from the east and the west. He's talking about the Gentile world. A lot of people will come from the east and west and take hold of the blessings of Abraham in heaven. And so Jesus says, go your way, and as you have believed, so be it done unto you. Now, what, how do we know what he believed? Because of what he said. You can always identify faith by the confession that it gives. And this man said, speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. But he tells us, what in my opinion is the most important part of this, and that is how he came to the place for Jesus to marvel because of his faith. He understood authority. He said, I'm a man under authority. In other words, he's saying, 
He gives examples. When I tell somebody to come, they come. When I tell those that are under me to go, they go. And when I tell my servants to do something, they do it. He understood that authority made your words powerful. He understood that the exercise of authority was through the speaking of the word. In his case, his word to his centurion, to the uh, soldiers under him, rather. But when it comes to sickness and disease, Jesus' word. Now, what's changed? What's changed between us and the things that we read in this example? Something has changed. But what is it? Is the method of receiving healing changed? Well, the Bible tells us that almost three-fourths of the people that Jesus ministered to, the individuals that Jesus ministered healing to, were healed on their own faith. So that part hadn't changed. Jesus told us, through his disciples to do the same work. Those that believe in my name will do the same works that I do and greater works shall he do because I go into my father, Jesus said. So if we're going to do the same works, it seems, stands to reason, seems obvious that we'll do it in the same way that he did. And it took faith on the part of the believer, of the receivers, the sick people, in order to receive their healing. Which tells us God doesn't force anything on anybody. So we know sickness and disease hadn't changed. We know that the centurion's part hasn't changed, representing us or representing any of that we'll believe. Faith is still required of us. The operation of faith or the manner that faith operates hadn't changed. So what's changed? One thing that's changed in this story is Jesus. The only thing that's changed in this story is Jesus. Now, how, how was it that the centurion was ac- able to accurately identify Jesus' authority over sickness and disease? How did that happen? Or maybe a better way to ask that is, how did Jesus have authority over sickness and disease to begin with? This man has heard enough about Jesus to identify that he has authority. He must have authority over sickness and disease or else he couldn't do the things that he did. Nicodemus pretty much said the same thing in John chapter 3 when he came in under darkness, under cover of darkness. He said, no man can do these miracles that you do except God be with him. In other words, they recognized that the miraculous work of Jesus' ministry, which included healing to a great degree, they weren't the only miracles that he performed, but there were more miracles about, uh, regarding healing than any other area or any other thing that he did. So if those healing miracles and those healing works were a part of Jesus' time here on the earth, how did they come about? How did Jesus have authority over sickness and disease? Well, we're going to have to go back and understand a little bit about how Jesus came to the earth and what happened once he got here. As we said before, Genesis 126, God says, let us make man in our own image and after our own likeness and let them have authority or dominion here in the earth. Another place said that man was created to have dominion over all the works of God's hands. So God put man in charge. Man had authority on the earth. I think it's important, and I know I say this a lot, but it's important for people to recognize it, and I'm not sure everybody gets it the first time they hear it. But it's important to recognize that God never changes. That means his will never changes. That means his purpose never changes. That means he is steady and he is constant from the beginning to the end. So if his original intent was for man to have authority on the earth, man has authority on the earth. Somehow I think we got the idea. I used to think this way. Somehow I think we got the idea that when man fell, he lost his authority. And the Bible does talk about Satan being the god of this world. It does talk about how when Jesus was tempted of the devil during that 40 days or after that 40 days of fasting, before he began his public ministry, the Bible tells us specifically that Satan took him up into a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said, I have authority over all these things. Worship me and I'll give it to you. This has been delivered unto me, Satan said. And Jesus answered and said, get behind me, Satan, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Well, what's the extent of Satan's authority? If Satan had authority here on the earth to do whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted, why wouldn't he just wipe mankind out? Man is God's prized possession. And the only way that man has, uh, the only way that Satan seems to have access to operate is through his influence on man. Because Satan is not a human being. Satan does not have authority on this earth. It would be impossible after the fall or the fall itself 
to be the catalyst to give Satan authority on the earth. He didn't become a man. When man fell, he didn't elevate Satan at all. Satan is a spirit being. And spirit beings, non-human spirit beings, don't have authority here on the earth. Didn't then, don't now. And the only way that man has, the only way that Satan has any uh, avenue to operate here on the earth is by influencing man to operate contrary to the plan and the purpose of God. That was true then. That's why Satan had to take, approach the woman and try to get man to use his, to exercise or use his authority in a counterproductive way because Satan couldn't take it without that. He couldn't then and he can't now. So unless Satan operates or influences somebody to do evil, evil is not within his power to create because man has been given authority. God didn't turn into an Indian giver once mankind fell. So Jesus came to the earth, the Bible says, as a man. And because he was born as a man, that's why the virgin birth is so important. Romans 5.12 says, wherefore... By one man, talking about Adam, sin entered the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men. If Jesus had not been born of a virgin, then he would have been subject to the law of sin and death that all of mankind has been born unto. It would have affected him. It would have created the same dilemma for Jesus that it creates for us. We're born into a sinful world. Our flesh is subject to the law of sin and death to a certain degree. The temptation of sin, the, the uh, operation of death because of our previous experience with it through the flesh prior to when we get born again creates a problem for us daily. But not for Jesus. Jesus didn't have a sinful background. He, was not brought, uh, uh, he did not enter into, he was not born into any sin of the flesh whatsoever. That's why the virgin birth is so important. He was not born of man. He was born of a woman who was impregnated by the Holy Ghost. So Jesus bypassed the fleshly experience with the law of sin and death. See, if Jesus had been subject to the law of sin and death at any point in time, he could not have been a worthy sacrifice for mankind. He had to be pure, had to be spotless. When nobody that's born into this world under the law of sin and death, whichever human is, with the exception of Jesus, we're born into a sinful condition. Jesus wasn't. That's why he could be a pure and holy sacrifice. Another thing is, we know that Jesus, by virtue of the fact that he avoided contact with or dominion of the law of sin and death, that would make Jesus a righteous individual. Now, what did righteousness provide for Jesus here on the earth? It provided him dominion and authority over sickness and disease and over every evil work, over every evil influence that the devil has and operates with in this world for him. But being righteous, being the righteousness of God, or we can say it this way, being the son of God born into the earth, did not give Jesus power and authority to exercise dominion over other people's sickness and disease. Turn with me to John chapter 2. I want you to see something. I pray that I can make this clear because when you see it, It'll make a big change. Now, we know that the Bible tells us that Jesus went to be baptized by John in the Jordan River, right? Before he started his earthly ministry, he was baptized by John in the Jordan River. And the Bible tells us that everybody there saw the Spirit of God descend from heaven and land on him like a bird would fly out of the sky. The way the King James translation says, the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. And it remained there. It stayed there on him. And then Jesus went out into the wilderness. He was out there for 40 days, separating himself from all contact for the purpose of preparing for the ministry God had for him. And at the end of those 40 days or toward the end of those 40 days, it says Satan came and tempted him. The three temptations again turned the stones into bread. Jesus said, Thou man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Satan took him to the pinnacle of the temple said, cast yourself down, for even the Bible says, Psalm 34 says, the angels shall bear you up in their wings, lest you dash your foot upon a stone. And Jesus responds with the word again. The word also says, thou shalt not 
tempt the Lord thy God. And then the third one we just talked about was when he showed him the kingdoms of the world and said, I'll give you all this glory and honor and whatever. And Jesus said, thou shalt worship God and him only shalt thou serve. So the devil left him for a period of time. Now Luke chapter 4 verse 14 tells us that Jesus, after the, following the temptation of the devil, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. I want you to understand something, folks. Jesus didn't have the power of the Spirit before then. The Bible says very specifically in Philippians 2 that he laid aside his heavenly kingdom or his heavenly glory, power and glory. He did not bring that to the earth with him. In that sense and in that context, in order for Jesus to be a worthy sacrifice for mankind, he's got to be all man. He can't be operating on the earth as the son of God. Now, there are five times in the over 65 times that the Bible refers to Jesus or him referring to himself. Sixty of those 65 is where he's referred to as the son of man. The human side of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus. Five times. He's referred to as the Son of God. Three of those five, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of God, but that was in one setting. And the only time he ever used the Son of God, the phrase the Son of God rather than the Son of Man, was when he was trying to identify for his disciples, for his followers, where he came from. Otherwise, he always called himself the Son of Man. But when the power of the Spirit is made evident upon Jesus... Then Jesus comes back into Galilee and he starts performing miracles. Now, John chapter 2 is the first miracle that he performed. Look with me to John chapter 2. We'll start reading the story. Verse 1, And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto him, They have no wine. Now, let me back up a little bit to verse 2. Notice Jesus already had disciples before he ever made any or did anything miraculous. Jesus had disciples. We don't know if he had all 12 yet. But he had disciples that were following him because of the teaching and the preaching that he did, which has been very minimal up to this point because after, at the end of this story, John's going to say this is the first miracle Jesus did. But there was something about Jesus that captured the attention of these disciples and made them willing at the very least to follow him there was something about his knowledge there was something about the way that he described the kingdom of god or the things of god or his purpose or whatever i I don't really know i don't know how to properly categorize that but he did have miracles before the first or he did have disciples before the first miracle so again verse three and when they wanted wine the mother of jesus said unto him they have no wine now notice jesus response in verse four Jesus said unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Then his mother said unto the servants, she made a statement to the servants that's mind-boggling. Unless you understand how Jesus was operating on the earth. Jesus says to his mother, Mom, you can't just direct these things. He's saying to the mother, I'm not sent here to do this kind of stuff. But she turns to the servants and says, whatever he says to you, do it. Why would his mother say that? There's only one explanation that satisfies me. You see for yourself. But the only reason that I can imagine why she would have said and responded to his comment, what he just said about my hour has not yet come, is that she's seen his words come to pass. She's seen things happen through him prior to his miracles beginning, prior to his baptism by John in the Jordan River, she's seen things happen in his life as a righteous human being, as a righteous human being that superseded and overcame the law of sin and death which had passed upon everybody else. Otherwise, why why tell the servants do what he says? If anything, she'd tell the servants, well, there goes our last hope. We're going to have to make some kind of adjustments here. But she said, whatever he says to you, do it. See, folks, righteousness, Jesus operating in the righteousness that was available to him because he had bypassed the law of sin and death, being born into the law of sin and death, that provided him not only the worthiness to be our sacrifice, the sinless condition 
to be a sacrifice for all mankind. But it provided for him power and authority over the law of sin and death in his own life. But not for anybody else. His righteousness didn't make a difference for somebody else. That was a different work of God. So here he's born into the earth as a man, born of a virgin, born as a man in righteousness, not sin and death. And then the next thing is that the Holy Ghost comes upon him when he's anointed by God, when John baptizes him in the Jordan River. You remember Acts 10, 38? Peter's preaching at Cornelius' household, first um, real event where the Gentile world is reached with the gospel. Peter explains who Jesus was and what he did. He said this. He said, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil for God was with him. The thing that Peter preaches to the Gentiles, the thing that the Holy Ghost prompted him to teach or preach to them is that Jesus anointing with the Holy Ghost and power was the thing, the very manner or way for him to do miracles to show us God's plan and purpose on the earth. Back to Mary. Mary says to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. And there were set six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews containing two or three firkins apiece. That means they're big. Jesus said unto them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said unto them, draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not where it, whence it was, where it came from, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom and said unto him, Every man at the beginning does set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk and can't really taste what they're drinking anymore, then that which is worse comes out. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. Now notice verse 11. This proves what I was telling you before. It says, This beginning of miracles, that means it's the first one. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in the Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. Already had disciples. But now they're seeing a different side of whatever they had witnessed before. Now here's the point I'm trying to make. Is there any way we can read this story and not conclude that Jesus did not know ahead of time that he was going to turn water into wine? If he knew ahead of time that he was sent to this, this wedding to glorify God and begin his miracle work, then he wouldn't have responded to his mother the way he did. No way. That's true, isn't it? You can see that for yourself, can't you? In fact, when Jesus responds and says, Woman, what have I to do with thee? My hour has not yet come. That's an indication to me that he didn't think that that was the way that God wanted him to work. At least not at that present moment. But then... Maybe based on what she said to the servants, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Or maybe then it was made known to him by the Holy Ghost, who he was anointed with, that God did want him to do something about this situation. Then he turns water into wine. Folks, I want you to understand something. If Jesus always knew ahead of time what was going to happen, if he always knew, then that would be part of the heavenly power and glory that he had before he was born into the earth. That would create an unfair advantage and it would have violated Jesus' right to be the sacrifice for mankind. He had to not know. He has to operate by the prompting of the Holy Ghost just like he expects us to. Spur of the moment, perhaps. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying the Holy Ghost can't show you something that's coming. He can, and sometimes he does. But in the beginning, you would have thought that the first miracle that Jesus, I would have thought that the first miracle that Jesus performed would have been something that God would have shown him ahead of time and helped ease him into. That's not the way it worked. Jesus' response to his mother is an indication that he did not know, nor did he think that he was going to turn the water into wine. But she recognizes something. She knows something. Now, let me go back to what she knows. She, above everybody else on the earth, knows that he was born of a virgin. She knows what the angel Gabriel told her about him, that he would be the son of God. She knows. I'm sure that wasn't something she could go broadcasting about. 
that probably wouldn't do very, uh, serve their family relationship very well. But she knows. She knows who this guy is. And I believe, from what she said, she's seen his righteous position provide authority over the law of sin and death to benefit him personally and maybe his household as well. So she says, whatever he tells you to do, you do it. His words matter. So how is Jesus operating in the earth? As a man who is righteous by the nature of God he was born unto, who's anointed of the Holy Ghost with power. That's the way Jesus is operating here on the earth. That's the way Jesus is doing the will of God, doing the work of the Father. There's an interesting thing. Turn with me to John chapter 5. I'll point this out while you're turning there. There's an interesting thing in the prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17. In John chapter 17 is when Jesus is praying to the Father just before the uh, uh, Romans come and take him captive and arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane. And one of the things that he prays about you and me, all the body of Christ, being united with God about. He says, give them the power that I had with thee. And then he says in himself, Father, return the power that I had with you before the foundations of the world. Well, why would he pray that? Why would he mention that or make a request of that if he still had his heavenly power and glory here on the earth? It has to be true. Philippians 2 has to be true that he laid aside his heavenly power and glory because he refers back to it in the last, one of the last prayers that, uh, or the last prayer that we have record of him praying before he went to the cross. He said, give me back the power that I had with you before the foundations of the world. He's looking for a return. He's looking for God to regain or he's looking for himself to regain by the will of God something that he laid aside. Now, I want you to notice in John chapter 5, Jesus is talking about himself and his crucifixion and his resurrection. Um, Well, how far back do I want to go? Let's, Let's go back to verse 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. Now, that could mean one of two things. That could mean spiritually dead, people that are here on the earth and are alive in in their bodies, but spiritually spiritually dead, meaning their spirits were separated and estranged from God. Or it could mean, and in my thinking, it probably means both, it could mean, What Jesus talked about or what the Bible tells us about that after Jesus was raised from the dead, after the price was paid, he went into Abraham's bosom and led captivity captive. He led all those Old Testament saints into heaven with him. Both of those are true. Both of those fit the scripture. If he was talking about one and not the other, we don't know. So he says, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. I want you to notice this is one of the five times that Jesus refers to himself as the Son of God. Whereas over 60 times he refers to himself as the Son of Man. For, verse 26, as the Father has life in himself, so has he given to the Son to have life in himself. Now notice verse 27, this is the one I want you to see. And has given him authority, has given Jesus, God the Father has given Jesus authority to execute judgment also. Why? Because he's the Son of God. No, because he's the son of man. Notice what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying the source of my authority, the origin of my authority, the reason I have authority over sin and death and sickness and disease is because I'm a man. Not because I'm the son of God, but because I'm a man. Folks, when Jesus was here on the earth, he was all human. Now, his spirit was of God, which means he was all God too. He wasn't half and half. There wasn't just a mixture of God and humanity in him. He was all man. But he was righteous. Just as righteous here on the earth as he had been with the Father 
before the foundations of the world. Just as righteous. And that righteousness had to create and had to provide benefits. That's what Abraham's blessing is all about. If man could live righteously, then he could be blessed in all the things God blessed Abraham and Isaac and Jacob with. The only way you can do that is by not being born into the law of sin and death, which he wasn't. So Jesus was operating here on the earth as a man. Why would he do that? Well, as we pointed out, the, the, the most important factor it looks to me like is so that he could be a sinless, spotless, worthy sacrifice for man. But I think there's another byproduct of this. I think there's another characteristic that we have to take into consideration. And that is, he showed us how righteous men were supposed to live. Because when you were born again, when you and I accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we were made the righteousness of God in him. So how does that righteousness show up? Well, if Jesus is an example for us, then it shows up by our words coming to pass in the things that pertain to us. Now, if we're going to operate as Jesus did concerning sickness and disease on the behalf of others, then it's going to take some more special anointing, meaning God's plan for us to do it. Now, what did Jesus say that we would do? Jesus said in Mark chapter 16, about verse 17, 16 and 17, I guess. Jesus said, these signs shall follow them that believe in my name. He gives five things. One of them is they shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. You remember when Jesus appeared to the disciples after his resurrection, he said, all power. First thing he said after he said, all hail. Hey, guys, I guess that's what that means. But the first thing that he told them of importance was all authority has been given unto me in heaven and earth. You remember me asking before what's changed from the centurion story? Here's what's changed. Jesus now has all authority on heaven and earth. He has all authority in heaven and earth. He has the keys of hell and death. He's broken the back of the law of sin and death so that righteous men, so that men can first be righteous, be made righteous through his blood. And those righteous men and women can live on the earth overcoming and victorious over every aspect of the law of sin and death. Paul comes to this understanding. Jesus reveals this to him. And Paul comes to this understanding in Romans chapter 8. And he says, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and death. That puts us in exactly the same position Jesus is when the centurion comes to him. Exactly the same. Exactly the same. The only difference is Jesus was anointed by the Holy Ghost with the power of God to heal sickness on behalf of others. But we're in a position where as a righteous human being, all men and women, as a righteous human being, being made righteous by the blood of Jesus, we have complete and absolute authority over the law of sin and death. That means that Jesus had to be operating here on the earth like Adam was before the fall. And if you think about it, Jesus being born into the world is exactly the same way that God created Adam and Eve in the garden. He fashioned their bodies, molded man out of clay, fashioned the woman's body out of a rib from Adam's side, breathed into both of them, and they became living souls. Righteous. Now, what was impossible to Adam and Eve, considering and, and understanding the authority that God had made them to have, considering the authority that they had over all the works of God's hands, what could Adam and Eve not do here on the earth? I'm not talking about the command not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'm talking about just as, in a, in a general sense, Adam and Eve here on the earth, created by God in his image and after his likeness, breathed their, the source of their life was the spirit of God that he breathed into them. They became living beings. What couldn't they do? They have authority on the earth. They do whatever they want to do. Nothing is out of bounds. Nothing is out of the realm of possibility. Nothing is impossible to either one of them because they were created by God in his image and they were righteous in spirit.
What couldn't they do? That's the condition that Jesus is operating in in his earthly ministry. What couldn't he do? There wasn't anything he couldn't do. He couldn't violate God's word, but that's not the kind of thing I'm talking about. I'm talking about the power that he had here on the earth, not because he was anointed with the Holy Ghost in power, but because he was a man in the image and likeness of God, born of the Spirit of God, just like you and I are. What couldn't he do? You can't find anything, folks. You can't find anything that's out of the realm of possibility. Jesus himself said all things are possible to him that believes. Now, who's he talking about being the believer? Well, he can't be talking about people that had been born again because nobody could be born again when he said it. That could only come to pass after he went to the cross and was raised from the dead. But even when Nicodemus came to Jesus in John chapter 3 under cover of darkness, Jesus said in response to Nicodemus saying, we know you've sent from God because nobody can do these miracles unless God is with them. Jesus turns it around and says, you must be born again. Why is he talking about being born again? Because he's saying righteousness, the position that righteousness gives us with God enables the miraculous. Nicodemus may have thought that Jesus has jumped the track and gone on to talk about something else, but he hasn't. Nicodemus is talking miracles. Jesus says, get saved. You must be born again. Because the key to the miraculous is not just some ethereal power of God out there that you hope falls on you. The key to the power of God in your life, to be a victor in your life, and I'm not talking about ministering to others. I'm talking about the key to overcoming the law of sin and death and its consequences in your life depend on one and only one thing, righteousness. Do you understand what I'm saying? Remember when they asked Jesus, I think this is in John chapter 4, but they asked Jesus, no, it's, uh, it's Mark chapter 12. They came to Jesus and said, by what authority do you do these things? They weren't arguing that he's doing them. He did things that nobody could deny. But the Pharisees, the, the rulers of the Jews, came and said, by what authority doest thou these things? And Jesus said, well, I've got a question to ask you, and if you answer my question, I'll answer yours. He said, the baptism of John, was it of heaven or was it of men? What did John do? John went around telling people to repent for the kingdom of God was coming near. The time was coming shortly for the kingdom of God to appear. Now to the Jews, that meant the kingdom of God would throw off Roman rule or anybody else's rule from their neck. They would go back to being God's favored people And they would rule the earth. That's what the kingdom of God meant before Jesus started teaching what it was. That's what every Jew thought was going to happen when the kingdom of God was restored on the earth. There were several times where people came to Jesus, different people came to Jesus and said, Master, good master, is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel. They thought that meant gain freedom from foreign rule. In their time, in Jesus' time, it was the Roman rule. But that's not what Jesus came to provide. That's not what he came to bring. So when when Nicodemus says to Jesus, we know that you've got to be from God because these miracles can only come from God and they can only come from somebody that God is using or God uses. And they knew that sinful people could not and would not ever be used by God. That's the way they understood it. You remember when the... um, The man that was born blind was healed and he was called on the carpet in John chapter 5. Following his healing, he was called on the carpet by the religious leaders and they said, who did this for you? He said, I don't know who he was. And they said, well, give God glory, not this guy because this guy is a sinner. And the formerly blind man said, well, he may be a sinner, but all I know is he laid hands on me. He told me what to do to regain my sight and now I can see. He said, God doesn't use people that are sinners like that. So it became a real issue. They threw him out of the church, as a matter of fact. 
because he wouldn't glorify God in the way that they wanted it done. He wanted to recognize Jesus, even though he didn't know who he was. He couldn't see him when he first came, when Jesus first came to him. And Jesus had to appear to him at a later time to identify who he was. All this points to the same thing, and that is righteousness is the key. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. We'll close with this. Romans chapter 8. Notice verse 1. Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. This phrase, who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit, is not in the original text. It is in the original text down in verse 4, I believe it is. But this must have been mind-boggling to the translators because they took a phrase, this phrase, who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. They took this out of its setting and put it in in verse 1 of Romans chapter 8. This should read, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, period. That's the end of what was said. That's the end of what Paul wrote before they divided it in chapter and verse. He did not say in verse 1 that walking after the flesh or walking after the spirit rather than walking after the flesh is a prerequisite or a condition for no condemnation. He didn't say that. Now, don't take my word for it. Study it out for yourself. You'll find that there are different translations that will put this phrase in parentheses and a little footnote saying not supported by the original text. So it should read, after Paul finishes telling us in chapter 7 about his own struggle with the flesh and how that he found himself doing things that he regretted or hated, that his spirit hated to be done, he concludes by saying, because of the sacrifice of Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ. How is that possible? There's only one answer, and that is because you've been made righteous. Because you've been made righteous, because Jesus and the blood of Jesus is the only thing that can deliver you or me or Paul or anybody else from the work of the devil in us, Paul concludes by saying there's therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ. You've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus, by making Jesus the Lord of your life, And that really means something to God. I think it means less to us, maybe less in varying degrees. But I think it means less to us because we don't understand what really happened. But oh, thank God we're learning. So he says, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Verse 2, for because... The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. I want you to notice what Paul is saying. Just as he's identified and explained his challenge, his struggle with the flesh in chapter 7, he's saying because the blood of Jesus has made us free, even when we catch ourselves doing things that our heart, meaning our spirits, resent, even when we catch ourselves doing things that we know are contrary to the life of God in us, we still have been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus and therefore the law of sin and death has no power over us whatsoever. Now, there may be things in your life that that contradict that in every respect. For example, somebody that's hooked on drugs or, or addicted to tobacco or drinking or whatever else, they may look at this and say, but it's the law of sin and death that pushes me to do these things that I'm trying to quit. Well, that may be in your flesh, but that doesn't change the fact that you were made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Your flesh may not line up with what the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus would do or what the lifestyle that you want to live, free from every addiction, free from every substance abuse or whatever. You may hate those things in yourself and in your flesh and in your life, just like Paul hated the things that he was doing that were wrong. But it doesn't change the fact that the blood of Jesus made you righteous. That's hard for us to comprehend. I understand how difficult the concept is to grasp. But it makes me aware of how much greater God's love and his ability to love is than we see in ourselves. I think we have the capacity to have the same kind of love and walk in the same kind of love. But boy, that takes some development, doesn't it? 
But God is fully developed. So nothing you have ever done, nothing you will ever do will put you in a position to be dominated by the law of sin and death ever again. You are free by the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Verse 3, it says, For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, meaning for a substitute for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Here's that phrase that they drug up into verse 1. It should be in verse 4. He goes on to say in verse 6, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Verse 8, So then they are that are in the flesh cannot please God, but, verse 9, But you are not in the flesh. In other words, you meet the criteria of verse 4. Verse 4, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Verse 9, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwells in you, if you've been born again, if the blood of Jesus has made you a new creature. He says, now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Christ tells you what he means by the Spirit of God. If any man has not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. In other words, if a man doesn't have the Spirit of Christ in him, he hasn't been born again And therefore, he he is in every way subject to the law of sin and death. But that's not your experience or mine. Our experience is we've made Jesus the Lord of our lives and the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus through our new birth, through our new creation experience has made us free from the law of sin and death in every respect. In every respect. Now, when Jesus, as the Bible says, as Jesus said in John chapter 5, Verse 26 and 27, as the Father has life in himself, so is he give the Son of his Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment in the earth because he's the Son of Man. What judgment did Jesus execute? What judgment did Jesus bring to the earth? Did he judge man? Well, in one place, Jesus said, I didn't come to judge you or judge any of mankind. The Word will do that at the end. So he didn't come to execute judgment on man. What did he come to execute judgment on? Spiritual death. Every aspect of the law of sin and death that's operating in and against mankind in the earth. John said it this way in one of the letters he wrote to the church. 1 John chapter 3, I think it is. John said, for this purpose, the son of man was manifest that he might destroy the works of the devil. When Jesus came to execute judgment on the earth, he didn't come to judge man. He came to judge sin. As a substitute for sin, we just read it here in Romans chapter 8. As a substitute for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In other words, he executed judgment against sin in the flesh. And he did that because he was a man. Living righteously because of the life of God on the inside of him. Living righteously here on the earth. And when the Holy Ghost anointed him, then he was able to do miracles and great and mighty works for the benefit of others. So what do we say to these things? Well, what it makes me do is recognize the importance of being made righteous by his blood. It makes me aware of the place that's available for me and you and everybody else that's been born again. To live before God, free from sin, free from the consequences of sin, free from the results of sin, free from the law of sin and death. And folks, I got to tell you, I believe that in the last days, the further and further we get, the closer and closer we get into the last days until the end when Jesus comes back. I believe that one of the characteristics of the, of the church will be that we learn to stand in righteousness. We learn to to accept what that is, what it means, what the Bible says about it, and operate in righteousness. I truly believe that. I don't believe that the church is going, I don't believe it would be a glorious church by God's definition for the church to be living in sin and doing miracles. How is that going to draw the sinner? 
How's that going to draw the unsaved? They're going to look at us, as many do already, look at the, the world looking at the church. They're going to look at us and say, well, they're not any different than I am. I can't explain the miracle that I just saw, but they're not any different than I am. They're not living any better way than I am. They don't have any greater place with God than I would have. But if they see us operating in righteousness, if they see us operating in righteousness, they'll want what we've got because it'll be a stark contrast to what they know they have. That has to be true. It has to be. One of the things that Peter preached in Acts chapter 3 after the man at the beautiful gate was healed and everybody came running together and part of his sermon to get the, the 5,000 people saved that day is he said, well, let me read it to you. I'll mess it up if I try to quote it. I'll, I'll leave part of it out. Let me turn here to Acts chapter 3. Verse 19. He says, repent ye therefore and be converted. Born again, that's what he means. That your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive, literally retain, until the times of restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets since the world began. Do you understand what he's saying? Do you understand what Peter's preaching? They did. They understood that the Messiah that they were looking to come had come and been crucified by both the Jews and the Romans. Jews representing Israel, Romans representing the Gentile world. He was a worthy sacrifice for both Jew and Gentile. He was a worthy sacrifice and, and, and both the Jews and the Gentiles leaders, Herod Pilate and so forth, were in complete agreement with his sacrifice. Pilate knew there's no reason for him to be sacrificed but he was consenting to his death. So Pilate, acting on behalf of the Roman government, the Gentile world, placed his stamp of approval just like the Jews and the Pharisees and the re religious leaders had for Jesus to die. So his death was approved by the representatives of both Jews and Gentiles. Now, Peter is telling them that the Messiah has come. He's gone back to the Father, but he's coming back. And he says there are two conditions that will be associated with Jesus coming back or the time leading up to Jesus coming back. And that is times of refreshing and times of restitution. God will restore certain things in the earth through the church before Jesus comes back. He will restore certain things. One of the things, the times of restitution has to be a restoration of the character and the nature of Jesus. I believe the time is coming where the church will gain enough knowledge or walk in a, a greater degree of faith. I'm not sure exactly what it would take, but walk in a greater degree of faith so that his character becomes ours. And then I believe the second thing that's going to happen are the times of, re of refreshing that come from the Holy Ghost. That has to mean the same thing that the latter rain is talking about. That has to mean what James 5, 7 says, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. For the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and has long patience for it until he receive the early and the latter rain. I believe that early and latter rain, which always refers to a move of the Holy Ghost, is the time of refreshing that he's talking about in Acts 3, 19. So if that's true, then there are going to be two outstanding characteristics of the church, the body of Christ, as we lead up to the end. One, a restoration of the character and the nature of Jesus himself. We'll learn to walk in love or we'll decide to walk in love as Jesus intended for us always to do. And then those times of refreshing has got to be the miracle working power of God. Now, we don't operate in greater character to earn the power of God. But because we love God so much, we begin to live up to the character and the nature that's within us as a gift of the Holy Ghost because we were born again so that the power of God can flow through clean channels clean channels 
And I believe that will be a part of the glory of God manifesting the earth. Sure is quiet in this Presbyterian church. That has to be true, folks. It has to be true. The Lord prompted me to start praying a couple of years ago for safe guides. Safe guides. The body of Christ doesn't just need people to guide us. We need safe guides that will lead us in the right way and will lead us in the right manner. Folks, what the Bible says about the glory of the Lord being seen on the earth and covering the earth like the waters cover the sea, that's really true. That's really going to be. That's really going to happen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great privilege that we have to read and understand your word, to come to the understanding of who we are in Christ. We thank you that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost when we were born again. But Father, our desire, more than anything else, is to develop into the people that you want us to be, to develop and walk in love in such a manner that the world knows we're of you. Jesus, you said that by the love of God shown in our hearts and in our lives toward others, the world will know that we are of you. Lord Jesus, we thank you that because you've made us righteous with your blood, we are free from the law of sin and death. We are free from sickness and disease. We're free from lack and poverty and every evil thing. For Jesus executed judgment on the devil in his works. He destroyed the works of the devil in his earthly ministry to show us your will for our lives. What you would have us to do in the way that you would have us to live. Thank you, Father, that you want us to be free in every respect. Because the word says, he whom the Son has set free is free indeed, meaning in every way. We thank you that we're free from everything pertaining to the law of sin and death. In Jesus' name. We are righteous by the blood of Jesus. Our righteousness is of you. Father, I pray that you would work in your church worldwide so that believers would stop backing up from the truth of the righteousness of God that we've been made to be. That we would come to understand that it's not bragging to say that we've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus, but to recognize that that righteousness elevates us to a place far above the power of the devil. That you would make known unto us, Father, that there is no evil work, there is no work of the devil, there's no power that the devil exercises, there's no attack of the devil that can overcome our position of righteous men and women made in the image of God, who have authority here on this earth. And Lord, as you see fit, let us live our lives in such a way that people see manifest in and through us the life and the power of God, just as Mary saw in Jesus and commanded the servants to do whatever he said. May we live our lives in such a way that it would draw others to want to know what it is that we've got that they don't have. And let us live our lives as servants, children, but willing to serve in any and every way necessary to help set them free too. We declare, Father, that because we're believers in the name of Jesus Christ, these signs follow us too. We exercise authority over the devil. We speak with new tongues. If we eat any deadly thing that shall not hurt us, and we lay hands on the sick and they recover. Father, raise us up to be the army that you left here on the earth. A people, a family, a body that Jesus directs, but an army 
that takes back ground, spiritual ground that the devil has taken from us. We love you, Father. We thank you for making good on your word in our lives and for revealing to us like we've never seen before the place that you have for us to stand. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand. Say it with me. The Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. Now say this. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, I am free from the law of sin and death. Made free by the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. If that ever dawns on us, we'll turn the world upside down. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us. Don't forget our midweek service on Wednesday night at 7. We'd love to see you again. Amen.